We were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about them. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. We're talking with Greg Allen today. He's the Chief of Strategy and Communications at the Jake, DOD's Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. Greg has just put out a great publication on AI technology, so we want to talk about it and everything else he's working on. Well, thanks for doing this. Hey, it's a pleasure to do it. Cool. Tell us how you got into this. Well, I was in the think tank world, uh, like yourself. I was a fellow at uh, Center for a New American Security. Um, and that's how I met General Shanahan. We were actually speaking at the same conference in Australia, um, which was, uh, he was talking about at the time Project Maven, and I was talking about uh, a speech on AI and national security. Um, and we had already sort of been familiar with each other uh, because I had taken some public stances about Project Maven, and he obviously, as head of Project Maven, was aware of some of those. Um, and so we had a conversation, and then about a year later, uh, when the conversation started orienting towards the formation of the Jake, um, and he was tasked to lead that, you know, I was uh, one of the folks that he asked to, to come with him on the journey. Were you for or against Maven? Uh, I was strongly in favor of Maven. Oh, good. So we're and on. more nuancedly, uh, I had written an article that was published in uh, Nature, which is sort of a scientific uh, journal, um, that was essentially saying, you know, there are times when uh, technical researchers should say no to projects that are unethical, um, but the boundaries being drawn and the way that Project Maven is being implemented um, this is actually the exact sort of project that I was hoping the military would take as a first step um, because it was implemented in such a cautious manner. Uh, so I, my op-ed at the time, uh, which Nature doesn't normally uh, run that many op-eds, but they ran one of mine, uh, was military, re or sorry, AI researchers should help with some military work. And yeah, I remember. Yeah. What, um, what was the reaction to it? Um, both pro and con. Um, you know, I got correspondence uh, on both sides, um, but in general, you know, mostly favorable. Um, there was a few AI researchers, in, including some that I have, you know, a great deal of respect for, uh, Pedro Domingos, who wrote The Master Algorithm, which is a lovely uh, introduction to AI technology for anybody who needs one. Um, you know, he... He, who has you know, given talks at Google, uh, you know, tweeted out, hey, everybody who works at Google, you should read this article. That's great. Speaking of um, understanding AI, what led you to write the primer that you wrote for DOD senior leadership? Well, I, I kept having to give the same sort of AI 101 overview um, over and over in meetings, uh, no matter how much you know, time went by. Um, and then having seen sort of other folks uh, in the department uh, and even outside of the department sort of give that briefing, um, I was constantly unsatisfied by folks who had sort of calibrated uh, their presentation incorrectly for the audience, right? There was sometimes some incredible researchers who were giving a great presentation suitable for somebody who already has a PhD in computer science, 
Uh, and at the other times, you know, there was somebody who was giving a presentation uh, that was, you know, suitable for kindergartners. Um, and, you know, after giving the presentation a, a bunch of times myself, um, I basically said, okay, something needs to be written down um, that's suitable for folks who, you know, are educated, uh, do have a basic understanding of technology, um, but need to have an improved understanding of AI technology because their job is going to require them to make decisions that take that into account. Um, and so my actual mental model for the audience uh, in that paper, uh, which the Jake put out, um, called Understanding AI Technology, my mental model for the audience was actually General Shanahan um, on the first day that he took over Project Maven. Um, because this was somebody who you know, had had a background in overseeing large technology programs. He had run the Air Force Intelligence Surveillance and Reconnaissance Agency. So he was familiar with digital sensors, um, large, uh, large pipe data bandwidth issues, um, and a bunch of other sort of related technological areas, but this was his first sort of professional interaction um, with machine learning and artificial intelligence in the modern sense of the word. Um, and so my, the question I was asking myself is, what is the sort of minimum amount of technical nuance that someone like General Shanahan would need uh, in order to make good decisions in overseeing um, AI technology programs? And so when, when, when I showed him the draft, um, he had he had the exact reaction I was hoping for, um, which was, "Wow, I wish you'd written this four years ago." <laughs> That's pretty funny. So um, sometimes when DoD gets a new technology, when when you go say they have a big war game, sometimes at the Naval War College, and the new technology is presented at the flag level, this kind of fairy dust. You know, you have a strategic mm -hmm. problem. You sprinkle the new technology over the problem and it goes away. Is that where you think we are with uh, AI at DoD, or is it better than that? Um, there's a diversity. There's sort of a diversity in levels of understanding uh, throughout the department. Um, some people get it. Uh, some people don't get it. Um, and you know everything in between. I think the, the 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 argument that has been solved right is the argument as to whether or not AI is important. Um, that was kind of the argument I was having around three years ago. Um, and that argument has been won. Um, the Secretary of Defense named artificial intelligence as his sort of top technological priority for the department. Um, the Congress formed the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. So that argument about whether or not AI is important um, has been won. Now the sort of debate we're having is to what is the right way uh, to sequence our adoption of artificial intelligence technology. And that's one where literacy in the specifics of the technology matter a great deal, um, but also issues around program management um, matter a great deal. One of the things that I always try and remind folks is that, you know, simply adopting a technology um, very often delivers no performance benefit whatsoever. Um, it really has to be coupled uh, with some kind of process reforms that are designed to harness the benefits of that technology. Um, this is kind of a stupid example, but it's one that I have found useful to sort of convey. Um, so imagine that you got into a time machine and you went back to the days of George Washington's, you know, Revolutionary War Army. At the time, um, that army was using extremely inaccurate musket rifles. 
And because of the inaccuracy, they had adopted a uh, rule, uh, a rule governing the use of the weapons. And the rule was, uh, don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes, basically meaning uh, your, your rifles are hideously inaccurate, so only shoot once the enemy army is extremely close to you. Um, so if you went back in time and you equipped George Washington's army with a bunch of uh, modern sniper rifles, you know, something that could hit a target accurately from a mile away. Well, that technology would definitely improve uh, the, the performance of the army, but it would improve the performance way, way more if you changed the rule, uh, which is don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes, change that rule to fire from as soon as you see the target. Um, so only, you know, coupling the introduction of the technology with the reform of the rules and the practices that are designed to exploit that technology, um, are you actually going to see any, you know, really significant performance improvement? And so that's why one of the things that we have to caution folks, um, you know, even some of our supporters who are quite gung-ho about the adoption of AI technologies, there's no real point to adopting AI for AI's sake. The, the, the key is to identify what are the problems that you are having operationally? What are the constraints that face you as you seek to execute your mission? And then let's have a conversation about whether or not those constraints are a good fit for AI technology where it is today or AI technology where we think we might be able to get to um, if we had some focused research and development. Um, and guiding folks to that sort of problem-oriented conversation um, such that we can actually wrap uh, a technology introduction uh, program around it, um, that's a really important conversation to have. And, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote um, Understanding AI Technology is that the sort of basic literacy in AI technology is really important when you're trying to understand what problems might be a good fit uh, for an AI-enabled solution. The changing operations and tactics sounds like something the services would do. How does the how does the Jake fit in with that? Um, there's you're absolutely right, right? We're not out there sort of writing um, tactics. What we get involved with is uh, the sort of software development practices um, embodied in the Agile framework. Uh, so for anybody who's familiar with this, one of the key you know underpinning principles in that is that the end users. Um, should be a part of the development process. I think too often in DOD acquisitions, what you see is, you know, there's this upfront sort of requirements uh, setting process, um, and they maybe talk to the end users, hopefully they talk to the end users, um, but then they sort of throw it over the wall uh, to this group of folks who are in charge of writing the contract, who are then, who then throw it over the wall to a group of folks who are in charge of actually going through the contracting process um, from a legal and process perspective, who then throw it over the wall, right, to the research and development folks. Um, and each one of these steps, right, can take months or even years. And so the, the, the actual length of time between the end user who said, I have a problem that looks like this, and the folks who are developing a solution for that, you know, in, in, a, in a poorly run, you know, DoD program, that, that gap in time can be many years. And so the situation on the ground um, can have changed an awful lot. Uh, the sort of minimum, or sorry, the average fielding time for a major weapons program in DoD is seven years. Um, and each step in that process takes a long time. So in the Agile framework, you view the end user as your partner in the development process. And so you are constantly um, out there uh, observing their practices, 
um, talking with them about what makes their job hard. Um, and then you are showing up with prototypes, which are only you know, a fraction of the ultimate capability you're hoping to deliver, but you're asking the end user to experiment with those prototypes and uh, tell you whether or not they're valuable. And then you can observe what are the processes and practices that might get in the way. So we're mostly involved um, at the sort of TTPs, um, training tactics and procedures um, aspect of processes. Then on the, on the, that's sort of on the small scale, which is true for essentially every project we use, whether that's sort of back office automation or you know, something at the more tip of the spear uh, of DoD use of force. Um, the sort of second aspect uh, where we get involved is there is obviously the joint staff um, who is really responsible for driving um, you know, warfighting concepts and doctrine. And so that is their job. Um, you know, we are not trying to take that job, but we do engage with those folks constantly um, to try and make them aware of sort of what, what is the state of the art, what types of capabilities, you know, we could, we could help deliver that might be useful um, as they're thinking about their own problems at sort of the macro picture. So you engage with uh, the developers as well? You engage with the joint staff to work on how they'll use this stuff? Do you engage with the developers on how they build this stuff? Well, the, the, the joint staff, right, is more on the sort of um, warfighting concept uh, part of the equation. Um, and then from the end user inputs, that's more of the combatant commands side of the story. And then the developers, of course, if it's a, if it's a relatively small project, maybe something related, uh, a relatively small project, maybe something related to uh, business process transformation, um, maybe DoD back office stuff. Well, in that case, um, you know, we would just uh, engage directly and perhaps even just some of the uh, data scientists and AI engineers on our own team would just write the code themselves because maybe it's the kind of thing that can be done uh, in a week or so. Um, but for larger scale efforts, of course, we, we go through the, the DoD acquisition process. So we actually will sign contracts um, with developers and they will work for us, essentially. I mean, we literally just signed um, earlier this month a contract vehicle uh, that has a ceiling award of $800 million. Um, and that's specifically related to our joint warfighting operations mission initiative. So the intention is very much to um, actually deliver real capabilities that makes an impact. Who, um, who are you contracting with? Is it big companies, little companies, Beltway Bandits? I mean, who, who is your audience? All of the above? Yeah, it's very much all of the above. So right now, the Jake does not have uh, independent uh, contracting authority, uh, which is to say it does not have its own contracting office. Um, so we, we leverage existing contract vehicles uh, where they exist sort of throughout the Department of Defense uh, and in a few cases in the, in the wider government. Um, in the case of the, the contract that I was just mentioning with that $800 million ceiling, um, that we were partnered with the, the General Services Administration um, and went through, went through their procurement process. Um, and that, that award was a, a task order uh, for a sort of prime contractor who can partner uh, with sort of any any subcontractor right that uh, within the boundaries of the, the performance work statement. Um, in, in terms of like who who we do work with, um, it really is a mix. I mean, on, on some of our projects, uh, you've got you know Silicon Valley um, and West Coast sort of big name technology firms. Um, on other projects, it really is more of the sort of defense startup ecosystem, uh, which we are really encouraged by and seek to support and, frankly, have been getting great work from. 
Um, and then, of course, the sort of uh, traditional defense industrial base is likewise involved on uh, a, a good number of our projects. So it really relates to the sort of what is the actual problem that we are trying to tackle and what type of company with what types of capabilities um, is the best fit for, for that niche that we're going after. Do you do a lot of work with uh, DIU, the Defense Innovation Unit? Yes. I mean, the, we, we actually have a kind of a longstanding history uh, with DIU. Um, for one thing, uh, a DIU member was part of the team uh, that was involved in standing up the Jake um, when, when the Jake was just a baby in the middle of 2018. Um, there was a, a DIU staff member who was spending an awful lot of time helping us stand up, which was quite valuable. Um, now we have our sort of industry engagement uh, staff officer, and he is actually based out of DIU um, in Mountain View. So he's co-located with their office, uh, and he leads a lot of our um, industry engagement outreach uh, type work. What's the reaction in Silicon Valley? I mean, are you guys frowned upon? No, I would say I would say we've had a we've had a very positive experience in Silicon Valley. I mean, in one, getting attention, um, you know, at the C-suite level um, from big and small companies has been terrific. Um, in terms of, you know, who bids on our projects, uh, you know, the companies that we, in general, the companies that we want to bid on our projects bid on our projects, um, which has been great. Yeah. What's the... What's the defense innovation ecosystem. I mean, you mentioned that, that you had defense startups. That's kind of new. I mean, that's really a big change if, it's, if, if you can tell us about it. Yeah, I, I think there's, there's a bunch of different uh, work streams going on in this direction, of which we are only one, but to the extent that we possibly can, we seek to, to partner with these different folks. So uh, examples include um, AppWorks, which is sort of the Air Force accelerator and incubator, uh, SoftWorks, NavalX, um, DIU. There's just all these sorts of different um, defense organizations who are designed to establish uh, improved relations with uh, smaller companies because we don't want um, we don't want the folks to be who are winning our contracts to be winning. Uh, because they're better at navigating the Byzantine labyrinth that is DOD contracting, right? We want them to win because they have the best capability and the best value for the application that we're going after. That's a complaint I've heard from a fair number of small companies, though, is that it's so complicated and uh, that you have to be an expert in DOD contracting, and they'll just go to the commercial world. How are you changing that? Well, I mean... I, I want to say there's a sort of a few ways in which we're going after that. Um, but before, before I get to those, um, let, let me just sort of point out that the problem is real, right? I mean, if you, if you think about the number of startup companies who began um, as a true startup, um, you know, with fewer than 10 employees, right, and are now major uh, enterprises serving the Department of Defense, Josh Marcuse, the former head of the Defense Innovation Board, um, used to point out, right, that there are only really two. Um, one is SpaceX, and the other is, is Palantir. Uh, in the past 10 years, right, that, those are really the only two um, companies who went the traditional startup route and, and had an awful lot of success in serving DOD. I mean, there's plenty of other companies who sort of had a more modest level of success um, before being acquired by a defense industry prime. 
um, or you know some other uh, more traditional person serving the DoD. Um, but the, but the fact that you know the number of cases of success is relatively modest affects the overall desire of investors um, to pursue this market, and so that's why it's so encouraging, right, to see all these different organizations within the Department of Defense um, try and figure out how can we make it easier. Uh, for innovative small companies to work with the Department of Defense um, so that more of them will do so and, and bring all the benefits therein. Yeah, I think Mike Brown is doing a great job. So uh, just he's the one I know best. But. Yeah, um, I think I think DIU, as I already mentioned, has been a great partner for us, AppWorks, SoftWorks, NavalX. I mean, there's a, there's DIU obviously is sort of the, the, the starting point of that. Um, but if it, you know, DIU alone... Um, is never going to be able to, to solve a problem for a $700 billion organization. And that's why I'm so happy to see that so many other organizations are sort of taking the DIU playbook um, and implementing it as best they can. So the first thing that we're doing, I mentioned that there's sort of a few areas we're going down. The, the first one is uh, partnering with these other organizations who have this sort of specialization, uh, which is why we have an officer co-located at DIU. The, the second thing that we're doing is we're actually – helping reform uh, the DOD acquisition process from the perspective of, of AI uh, specifically. So the Jake director chairs what is called the DOD AI governance process, um, and that includes you know, an executive steering group um, at the three-star or civilian equivalent level, as well as a DOD AI working group, um, which is at the uh, 06 or GS-15 uh, level. Um, and the, the working group has a bunch of different subcommittees, uh, not all of which I could reliably name off the top of my head. Um, but one is, of course, focused on acquisition and industry engagement. And that's specifically looking at what are the sort of the terms of the contract uh, that would make it easier uh, for companies to work with us and do good work um, in AI projects. And then secondarily, what is the sort of acquisition process? You know, how could DOD make it easier um, to do work, do good work for us uh, on AI capabilities. And so that is simultaneously, you know, producing playbooks. Um, hey, this is what's worked for us. You should try and replicate this, or this is what didn't work for us. Don't make the same mistakes that we did. Um, and in addition to playbooks, there's also actually that's going to feed into a policy reform process. So the sort of the ultimate output of this, this governance process um, is going to be recommendations for policy reform uh, that could ultimately be signed out by the most senior DOD leadership. So um, you're, when, when you say governance, most people think ethical frameworks, but you're saying it's actually broader than that and gets into acquisitions and other stuff. Yeah, so um, the, the responsible and ethical use of AI is one of those subcommittees, um, and it happens to be the one that had a... Uh, Secretary of Defense, you know, issuance come out the earliest, um, but it's not the only thing we're up to. Um, I mean, the, the the Jake chairing this this DoD AI governance process is is a pretty big deal. Um, and when I said before, right, that you can't just introduce the technology; you have to examine the the processes um, to enable the effective use of that technology. Well, that same argument applies to DOD-wide processes, namely the policies that we abide by. And so identifying, you know, what are the right policies to enable the effective and efficient adoption of AI, I mean, the Jake is all about that. Mm -hmm. How much do you guys spend 
your time looking over your shoulders at our competitors, I mean, how much does that enter into your thinking? Yeah, I think we spend a, a good amount um, thinking about that sort of thing. I mean, uh, General Shanahan, uh, who actually uh, retires uh, on June 1st of 2020, yep, um, he uh, religiously takes his intelligence briefing every day. Um, and takes takes pride in the fact that he, he just about never misses uh, his intelligence briefing um, because he cares an awful lot about it. I do think there, there's sort of an element of um, the most important thing that we can uh, work on is ourselves, right? Our ability to sort of influence the direction of our strategic competitors, uh, especially, you know, in the DOD technology field, um, is always going to be imperfect uh, and, you know, to a lesser degree than the extent to which we can modify ourselves. So our primary effort, you know, is, of course, on ourselves. But are we interested in what's going on in, uh, you know, Russia and China and elsewhere in terms of the military um, adoption of AI? Of course we are. Um, I mean, it matters a great deal to the future of U.S. national security. Um, what's the state of AI at DOD? Where would you rank it? I, mean, I know that's kind of a broad question, but... You know, when you think about it, when you came in and where we are now, what's changed? Well, I would say a great deal has changed um, from a few years ago. Uh, the, the first thing I want to say, though, is um, perhaps a bit redundant for the folks who have already read that paper, Understanding AI Technology. Uh, but one of the things I want to point out, right, is that AI in the handcrafted knowledge sense of the term um, is quite old, right? Uh, we have been, the DOD has been an effective adopter of that approach, that traditional software approach to artificial intelligence for 50 plus years. Uh, one of the capabilities that I love to point out um, is the auto GCAST system, uh, which is on the S-16 fighter as well as a bunch of other fighters. But that's a piece of software that can identify um, when a fighter pilot is blacking out uh, due to pulling heavy G-forces. Um, it can recognize that blackout, take control of the aircraft, fly straight and steady uh, until the pilot regains consciousness, and then return control of the aircraft over to the pilot. The, the, the DoD developed that system, which is an incredibly impressive system, um, decades ago. Uh, so in terms of you know, AI, uh, the DoD has been pioneering both the basic research of that technology and its effective adoption in real-world usage, including safety-critical real-world usage, we've been up to that and good at that for decades. So what's different about the current moment? Um, the current moment is heavily focused on the adoption of machine learning-enabled AI technology. Um, and so that has made a ton of progress over the, the past just four years. Um, since uh, General Shanahan took over Project Maven and since... Um, at the time, uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense um, Bob Work, you know, signed out the creation of Project Maven and a few other um, AI programs. I always think about that because I was negotiating neural networks in an arms control setting 20 years ago. So um, we didn't get very far, but it's been around for a while. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, Auto GCast, right, does not use neural networks, and, and the the number of uh, real-world use cases for neural networks. Um, 20 years ago uh, was relatively finite. I mean, it has just the, the number of cases where you can productively apply uh, machine learning in general and neural networks in particular 
the diversity of useful applications has just exploded over the past. Uh, that actually really made it since hard to negotiate since we had very few concrete examples. Well, yeah, I think um, it, it, it's a roughly as broad over the long over the long term. It's roughly as broad as software. Um, so if you think about how, how tough it is to negotiate software agreements internationally, it's, it's about roughly as e equally difficult to negotiate uh, AI-related stuff, um, unless you get really into a specific application. But I do that sometimes. I tell people, when people are worried about AI, I'll say to them, take out AI and put in software, right? Now, it's different, and I think the, the paper you did lays that out really well. But, you know, part of it is trying to reduce the the concern you see in the public over, you know, I've told people a couple times, Terminator is not a documentary. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I, lo I love that you say, you know, take out AI and put in software, because there are a lot of important differences um, for machine learning software from traditional software. There are a lot of important differences. But if you don't have a great understanding of, you know, how traditional software gets created, um, how it can be done well or done poorly, um, then starting with software is probably a better starting point for improving your understanding than starting with AI. Um, I often tell folks uh, that the best book they should read, you know, to understand how to accelerate the adoption of AI and DoD isn't a book about DoD, it isn't a book about AI, and it isn't even a nonfiction book. Uh, the book I recommend is The Phoenix Project, uh, by Gene Kim and a few others, and that's um, that's a novel uh, that is a nonfiction book in disguise, uh, designed to teach you sort of the the good principles of managing a software development organization. Where do you think the opportunities are for DoD in the next couple of years? I mean, when you get to actual deployment, I mean that's that's been a concern with some technologies in the and building off the fact that we've been talking about this for really decades. Where are the opportunities for actual use and deployment now? Yeah, I think the the Jake obviously the things that we're going after sort of reflect our our understanding and our best estimate of what are good candidates for near term adoption. So I'm going to talk about the Jake's portfolio, but the reality is there are other folks in the Department of Defense who are doing good work um, and have kind of exciting uh, AI development initiatives. Uh, the DoD AI strategy names the Jake uh, as the focal point of the DoD AI strategy, but if we were the only thing going on in DoD AI, that would be very bad news. Um, so each of the armed services has, has uh, other efforts, some of which we are involved in helping them with, some of which they are going sort of independently. Um, I think that is all good news, right? Um, so in terms of the Jake's portfolio, uh, we have kind of, uh, in addition to the AI governance process I already told you about, we sort of have two other big categories of activity. Um, one is uh, the Joint Common Foundation, uh, which is our effort to sort of lower the barriers to entry from a technical perspective uh, to developing high-quality AI and machine learning software in the sort of cyber-hardened DoD environment. Um, so there's an awful lot of things that make it hard to develop good software for the Department of Defense. Um, getting access to open source developer tools uh, on DOD networks, getting authority to operate on DOD networks, getting access to the relevant data sets that you need to train your machine learning models. And so the, the Joint Common Foundation, or the JCF, 
um, is our effort to sort of solve a lot of those platform and infrastructure problems um, so that other folks throughout the Department of Defense can have a much easier time um, piggybacking on our platform to develop their own applications. So that's one sort of very important category of activity that we're up to. Um, the other big category of activity is our mission initiatives. Um, and these are the projects that are more specifically targeted at end-user communities rather than developer communities. Mm -hmm. And so we have um, six of these mission initiatives. Um, some of them were, were recently renamed. So if you're familiar with our uh, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief mission initiative, that has actually now been renamed um, as the Threat uh, Prevention and Reduction uh, Mission Initiative. Um, and then we also have our, our Joint Logistics uh, Mission Initiative. And that one has um, some really exciting you know, news just in the past few months. Uh, we've been developing this engine health model uh, that can identify when H-60 helicopters, which is you know, a very commonly used helicopter platform, it's used by uh, each of the armed services, uh, but it can identify, you know, when those engines um, are likely to experience a, uh, a failure such that you can move the unscheduled failure in the field, which is very, you know, expensive and complicated to recover the aircraft and then get it to a maintenance depot. Um, you can move that unscheduled maintenance into a scheduled maintenance activity by sort of predicting the failure before it uh, occurs. And that we actually now have in operational use um, by some of our partners in Special Operations Command, uh, which was really exciting to go from the sort of prototype they're willing to, to play around with it kind of stage to the uh, more mature prototype. We're actually deriving enough value from this that we want to start using it in an operational capacity. Um, that was a great milestone that we just hit. So I think joint logistics, um, predictive maintenance, and supply chain optimization um, is just a very obvious candidate for the adoption of AI technology. And so the, the Jake sort of has our own portfolio of projects in, in that area, but there's plenty of other parts of, of DOD that have other stuff. Um, more recently, we've been pushing into uh, a new mission initiative, which spent a lot of FY19 in planning activity, but in FY20 um, has moved to more of a development and procurement uh, type model. And that is the joint warfighting operations. So this is our activities that are a little bit closer uh, to the tip of the spear. Um, and so we think there's a lot of good opportunities for, for projects there. So what's the balance between those two? Because most of the work in the commercial world, of course, is on logistics, decision making. Um, how close are you to that kind of thing in, in what you're doing at DOD? So I just got a piece, for example, this has been going on for a long time financial decision-making and particularly trading, it's largely automated now. You know, the, the humans set parameters and then the machines do the trades. Mm -hmm. um, what is that like for DOD? What's, and that gets you into some of these ethical guideline issues. that We, we want a human in the loop, which is when you're talking about uh, a couple seconds for a decision, probably not uh, the best idea. What's the thinking there for you guys? I mean, do you look at the commercial world? I mean, do you look at the financial markets? Yeah, so we, we definitely, um, as I said, we have sort of a portfolio of these projects, six mission initiatives. And one of them is, is literally called business process transformation. So that gets to the sort of back office software, which, part of, which parts of that can we use, you know, AI to uh, 
either automate an activity or improve the productivity uh, of um, individuals who are involved in that task. There was one application um, that a couple of folks on our team literally just wrote the whole thing themselves uh, in a couple weeks. Um, but it related to uh, compliance, uh, compliance with uh, forms. You know, basically there's, there's all these things, you know, a way a form has to be formatted. Um, and it was taking literally tens of thousands of labor hours um, across the DOD uh, to ensure compliance with these forms. Um, and, you know, a couple of our folks just in a, in a week or so, you know, wrote a script that could automatically check forms for compliance. Um, you know, that's not the, the world-changing type of AI thing. Um, no, no. Of course, the commercial we've, world. We've been pushing that for a long time. You know, that when you think about Medicare, when you think about HHS, when you mm-hmm. think about all the civilian services, uh, tens of thousands of hours doesn't capture the full extent. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so we have a mission initiative around business process transformation, and it really does get to that, that back office kind of work, um, which matters in terms of enabling the productivity and efficiency of the DoD. But um, for, for fiscal year 20, um, joint warfighting is, uh, in terms of budget, going to be almost as large as the other five mission initiatives combined. Um, so it really does represent the, the primary focus um, within the mission initiatives uh, because we think there's some really promising opportunities there. And, of course, that's that's what we're most interested in, right? The, the mission of the Department of Defense um, is to, uh, you know, provide a combat-credible force that can deter uh, our potential adversaries from war and, if needed, uh, to fight and win a war. Um, so that's something that we take seriously. And, and, obviously, the way that the Jake structured its projects um, was to go after, you know, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, uh, uh, predictive maintenance. These are areas where if we got it wrong, you know, the consequences were not life and death. Um, so the, the, it was a good learning opportunity. We, we chose those projects specifically because um, they maximized the speed at which we would learn as an organization and minimized the risk that we were taking on as we went through the learning process. Um, but now having been underway, you know, for over a year um, and learned an awful lot of lessons for these projects, um, we're ready to get, you know, to get started with some of these more tip-of-the-spear type activities. Great. We're coming up to the close of our time, so I'm going to have two more questions. The mm-hmm. first is, what are the obstacles to AI in the department? I mean, where where do you run into pockets of resistance? Mm-hmm. Um, well, General Shanahan always points out, and I think he's correct to do so, um, that you know the problem is not getting access to the most impressive algorithm um, because the algorithms are largely available uh, in the open source. Um, the real problems that we have are data, uh, having enough of the right kinds of data for the applications that we want to develop, and um, moving it from the people who have it uh, to the people who don't. Uh, Chris Bros. Um, who was previously on the the Senate Armed Services Committee staff, um, has this lovely line about how uh, data is the new oil, um, but too too many parts of the DOD treat data as engine exhaust. You know, this sort of thing that just happens and you notice it and you ignore it. Um, But in reality, you know, data needs to be treated as this critical asset. Um, So in addition to data, it's culture and talent. Um, Obviously, AI engineering skills um, are in high demand in the private sector, 
And the DOD career path, either for government civilians or for military personnel, you know, there, there is no billet uh, that you can assign somebody to um, to become a data scientist. And so figuring out how we're going to develop um, both a cadre of people who have these skill sets and also to develop a career path in the way that we had to develop a cyber career path such that you know, specializing in AI is a viable path to getting promoted and having jobs that you would be interested in having. Um, that, that process you know, has, to, has to take time, and it's something that we're, we're pushing forward on in the AI governance process. Yeah, it sounded um, very much like stuff okay. that uh, Alexander and now Paul Macastoni have had to wrestle with is creating that career path. And Keith Alexander did a pretty good job, so he might be a good model to look at. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's definitely one of those areas where if you can copy somebody's homework, um, this, this is not a bad place to do that. Yeah. So um, what do you think the the – big challenges are that are still ahead. I mean, you guys have done a great job at the Jake, um, and I think you're right. Compared to where we were, let's say, 10 years ago, five years ago, there's an amazing difference. Some of that's because the technology has gotten better. But what are the big challenges looking ahead? What, when, what do your successors need to start thinking about? Well, there's always, of course, the uh, proverbial valley of death. Um, and the Jake exists to uh, help overcome um, that valley of death. I mean, whereas DARPA's job is to sort of advance the state of the art in artificial intelligence, you know, we frame our job at the Jake as helping DOD adopt the state of the art as it already exists. Um, and even there, of course, uh, there is there is still you know valley of death risks because while we can you know sort of adapt commercial technologies that already exist to military use cases, um, you're still encountering the traditional um, DoD five-year planning budget process. Um, so we can show up uh, to an end-user community, have them be uh, sort of testing and piloting our project every step of the way. At the end of the story is a capability that they love. Um, and then they find out, right, that the, the relevant service organization or program of record um, did not include, you know, sustaining that technology in their five-year budget planning process. And so they know they have something and they want it, but the Jake is not really set up, right, to fund their use of it operationally in, per, in perpetuity. Um, so that's something that we have to figure out. The, the other thing is that the, the five-year budget planning process in general um, is, is really optimized for sustainment. It is not optimized for innovation. Um, it, is, it is really geared towards if something already exists and you can predict you know, how many missiles um, you're going to want to buy every year for the next five, it's designed to make it highly likely that you are ultimately going to get those missiles and that once we've figured out how to build that missile and the design works, that we're not going to, as an institution or a department, sort of forget um, how to make that technology work. So that, that's what I mean when I say it's optimized for sustainment. The problem for innovation is anytime you're trying to do anything new, um, the five-year budget process asks you to pretend like you know um, what the right answer is five years from now, right? We are, we are not going down this path. We are cutting this trail through a, you know, a nebulous jungle. Um, and so if we learn things along the way uh, that make us want to refine our approach, well, then the budget, the budget planning process um, 
sometimes too often right views those mistakes at, or sorry views those desires for a change in, in direction um, not as evidence of learning but as evidence of mistakes right and there are other people who quote unquote know how to use their money um, who could put that to better work and so I think figuring out how to not just reform the contracting and acquisition process but to reform the budgeting and planning process um, so that it, it draws the right balance between innovation and sustainment um, I think that, that's one of the problems the Department of Defense is going to have over the next few years um, as a lot of these sort of innovative technology and contracting programs start bearing fruit. Well, once they start bearing fruit, right, we're going to have to figure out how to make, um, make the changes that they've driven, you know, more permanent. Boy, changing the acquisitions process to fit the innovation cycle, um, that's a topic for another day. Uh, um, I have not touched that since the great tanker battles of a few years ago. <laughs> yeah. Or Jedi, which was another one. It's like, yeah. what are you talking about? But in any case, any final thoughts that you want to leave for the audience on this? Well, the, the last thing I want to say is that um, this, is just, this is just an important thing for United States national security. Um, and so I hope if there are folks out there who are thinking about you know, where they could put their, their talents to work in the service of, of U.S. national security. Uh, the Jake is hiring. There's plenty of other parts of the DOD that are hiring. Um, and so if they feel like they can uh, be of good use uh, and put their talents to work, you know, I hope they'll consider coming into government service or military service. Me too. It's a good job. Uh, and that's a good note to end on. Um, thanks for doing this. This was great. Yeah, it was my pleasure, Jim. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.